1: In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: Greetings, fellow time travellers. Uh, great to have you with me as we travel through space and time together. To help support the making of this podcast and get extra content every week, sign up to my Patreon.com site. You know it makes sense. Um, once you're a member, you get weekly videos, question and answer sessions, when I answer questions on everything, history, archaeology, current affairs, politics, competitions, a first glance at my weekly rants, it's all there, it's all there for the asking, and it's easy to join, just go to patreon.com, look for me by name, you have to part with a bit of cash, it's cheaper if you join for the whole year, but you can pay monthly if you prefer, in any event it'll be great to see you there, come and join the family. It's now time to strap into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. A chronic gambler plagued by epilepsy all his life. His seizures were terrifying, insightful and life-affirming all at the same time. In 1849, he was convicted of circulating banned literature and sentenced to death by firing squad. Marched out to face his fate as the soldiers raise their rifles and are about to shoot, his death sentence is commuted. He is sent instead into exile in Siberia. But the moment of his imminent death haunts him ever after. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Morning Neil. In last week's episode we met the scientific genius who taught us to see light for what it is. Where are we this week? Hi Paul and fellow time travellers. Yes, last week we met the brilliant physicist, Scotsman James Clark Maxwell. This week our journey through history takes us one step closer to the present day. It's now 1876 and we're on our way to Basel in Switzerland as one of literature's great figures stands before Holbein's painting called The Body of the Dead Christ in the Tomb. We're here to meet Fyodor Mikhailovich Dostoevsky. This is a story that affects me possibly more than any other in the whole sequence. It's inside my head. All the time, I can't, I can't shake it. I think about aspects of this often. Um, it's to do with uh, specifically Fyodor Dostoevsky, the the author, the writer, and his encounter, and that is the only word for it, with a painting that changed his life. I think you might even say it changed his psychology. Actually, it, it just changed the world for him. Uh, and the painting in question is called The Body of the Dead Christ in the Tomb. And it's by Hans Holbein the Younger. It was painted it was painted sometime between 1520 and 1522. Uh, but Dostoevsky's encounter with it happened in 1867 in the Kunstmuseum in Basel, in Switzerland. And he was with his wife, Anna. Anna Dostoevsky. The painting is, a, is a, it's a, like a life-size thing. It's 200 centimetres long and it's 30 and a half centimetres high and it, it's like a letterbox view or, or a, a cross-section as, th- as though you could see into the, the tomb in which Christ's body was laid for the period of time between his crucifixion and and the resurrection. For those interested in the in the technical aspects, it's oil and tempera on lime wood, and it is an extraordinary work of art. It's completely captivating. It does demand a lot of attention. Art critics would say that it's painted in what is known as the grotesque style. And it certainly is grotesque. It features an emaciated corpse, you know, skin and bone, a very thin depiction, a fleshless almost depiction of, of Jesus Christ. And the corpse is laid out on a, a cloth-covered slab, almost quite surgical looking in terms of the surface that he's lying upon his head is towards the left and his feet are to the right so you're looking at his right side um, and you can see three wounds graphically depicted so there's a puncture wound in his right hand a puncture in his right foot, they're from nails on the cross and on his rib cage on the right hand side there's a a gash, you know, made by the Roman soldier's spear. The hand and the foot, as in extremities of the body, are tinged green on account of putrefaction. The process of decomposition has started. And most troubling of all is his face. The face is a tinged green as well. The head is kinda like slumped down towards the viewer. You can see one eye and what the eye is open. He's got long hair, you know, that's a classic suggestion of, of Jesus being, you know, having long long hair rather than short. And it's un it's unkempt and it's kind of like it's pushed back off his forehead. Everything about it is an unsparing, unforgiving depiction of death. Anna Dostoevsky recorded in her diary about the event that she had to pull Theodore away from it. He'd been looking at it for such a long time, and he was a, an epileptic, and she knew the signs. And she she kind of got a, a suggestion from the way he was in front of this painting that he might be being triggered into a seizure. So she she hauled him, come on! You know she got him she got him away from it. And it was in the aftermath of this encounter with this painting that he began work on a novel called The Idiot, which published the following year, published in 1868. Effectively, the Dostoevskys were homeless at this point in their lives, really. They were, they were sort of drifting between addresses, short-term addresses, between Switzerland and in Italy. Dostoevsky was a chronic gambler, and he wasn't a good gambler. He lost all the time, and obviously, it just made matters worse for them. They were struggling financially anyway, and you know, any money they did get their hands on, Dostoevsky was likely to lose on another bad bet. So it's it's in the aftermath of this encounter that he he begins work, and by his own description of his own work, uh, the idiot was an attempt by Dostoevsky to portray a completely beautiful human being a perfect soul and the, the central character is prince lev Nikolaevich mishkin and prince lev mishkin is also epileptic and he's a he's a kind open-hearted genuine honest person and throughout the course of the the work the novel he's kind of targeted by lesser less wholesome figures by a long chalk, each of whom seeks to manipulate them to get them to do things that, that suit their objectives. Same with Dostoevsky. His, his epilepsy was a constant presence. He regularly had seizures. And as for anyone, his epilepsy was made worse by stress. I mean, so many... chronic conditions people's lives are made worse by stress and epilepsy is certainly one of them and it's fair to say that there were periods of extreme stress in Dostoevsky's life for example in 1849 he was arrested and charged with circulating banned materials (laughs) misinformation if you like certainly information literature that was not wanted by the state And so he was arrested with others and he was convicted and they were uh, sentenced to death, A lot of them. They were lined up to be shot by firing squad. And so they were, he and they were were standing, you know, with their backs against the wall, looking down the barrels of the rifles that were shortly to end their lives. But it was at that moment that their sentences were commuted from death to exile and imprisonment in Siberia, but you can imagine he had literally looked death in the face, and so you know these these were the kinds of events, and along with destitution and you know struggling for money and all of it, all of it made his life hard. But he recorded in a letter to a friend a particularly memorable seizure. And I'll, I'll read it to you. The, the air was filled with a big noise and I tried to move. I felt that heaven was going down upon the earth and that it had engulfed me. I have really touched God. He came into myself. Yes, God exists. I cried. You all healthy people have no idea for joy that joy is which we Epileptics experience The second before a seizure Muhammad That's how it's spelt in here Muhammad in his Quran Said he had seen paradise And had gone into it All those stupid clever men Are quite sure that he was a liar And a charlatan But no, he did not lie He really had been in paradise During an attack of epilepsy He was a victim Of this disease as I am I do not know whether this joy lasts for seconds or hours or months, but believe me, I would not exchange it for all the delights of this world. Now, Imagine that. you know you, 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 One would tend to think that epilepsy was only a curse for those afflicted with it. But there in, in Dostoevsky's words, and I've, I've heard it described similarly by other epileptics, it's something that, they, although it's a debilitating experience, it's also a glimpse of the transcendent and worth having for some. Some wouldn't, as he says, he wouldn't exchange it for all the delights of this world. Now, this is part of what why this particular story uh, haunts me. I think about it all the time because what if we don't, really understand what epilepsy is. And clearly we can describe it and it can be diagnosed and, and it can be managed with medication and all of the rest of it. But it's something to do with the you know, the electric charge of life that's in, you know, in the brain. It's something to do with a well, you'd call it a misfiring, I suppose, of of, of some of what it is to be conscious. But what if we don't properly know what epilepsy really is, and what what if it was, what if he's right, and Muhammad, the founder of, of Islam, what if epilepsy was part of his experience, because as it's described, he was in the cave, and, and suddenly he was in the presence of the angel, Jabril, G- Gabriel, and listening to the angel speak, and what if... What he was having is, was partly what we call epilepsy. And what is epilepsy? And he's, he's hardly alone in having, you know, it's, sometimes psychologists call these cosmic consciousness, where people in certain states experience the, the beyond. And they do. They, expe- they certainly have an experience. And, and what exactly is it? The Buddha is another one. You know, he, he had moments in his life where he kind of like kind of left this reality behind and saw the other and described it. And like Muhammad changed, affected the lives of billions as a result. What if it was there for Jesus? You know, where, where he was experiencing connection to our father, his father. What if he was having seizures? And what, what was happening there? Was his, was his consciousness expanded? And was he experiencing connection to something that the rest of us just don't get? And like, we've already discussed in here in this love letter, Emperor Constantine, who, before the Battle of Milvian Bridge in 312 AD, he had a vision. You know, where he saw the, the cross in the sky. And received the message that if this cross featured on, on the uniforms of the men, they would be victorious. Now, exactly what were the circumstances in which he had the vision? It's usually said that he dreamt it, that he was asleep and had a dream, but who knows? Paul, Saint Paul on the road to Damascus, you know, he describes a blinding light and hearing the voice of Jesus talking to him, and he understood it as as the voice of Jesus, and he had this message, in it and it changed everything for Paul, and, and thereby changed everything for Christianity, because of what Paul became in the aftermath of whatever it was that happened to him. And so, what if what if Dostoevsky has his finger on the pulse there? What if? He's speculating correctly that whatever happens inside the brains of of people that we call epileptics, what if they are experiencing cosmic consciousness? What if they are experiencing connection, however briefly, to something else? While he was in front of the painting, you know, back to the, the, the Kunstmuseum in Basel in Switzerland in 1867, when he's standing in front of the body of the dead Christ in the tomb. Before Anna could get him to come away from it, he said, a painting like that can make you lose your faith. Those were his words. And and then in, in The Idiot, the novel that he wrote in the aftermath, Mishkin visits the home of another character called Parfion Rogozhin. And on the wall of one of the rooms in Rogozhin's house, there's a copy of the painting, The Body of the Dead Christ in the Tomb. And he has Mishkin say the same thing, you know, that a a painting like that could make you lose your faith. And I've looked at that painting so many times. And I suppose the point of it is that in the painting, Jesus is dead. That's the fact of it. Resurrection notwithstanding, Jesus dies. And before incarnating the first time, before becoming flesh, Jesus had gone through a process which is described by the Greek word kenosis, and it means self-emptying, that before he assumed flesh and became Jesus, he shed, he cast off every last scintilla of his divinity. It was all gone. So that for his time on earth, he was a completely human, human being. And he had to be. He wasn't divine for that period. He had to live and die as a man. That's the point. It was by his really living and really dying that for Christians, it means that he he took away death for everyone else ever after. His dying was the last death there needed to be. And to experience it fully, he, he, he became entirely human. And he, he suffered the pain, and he suffered the death, and he suffered the fear, you know, on the cross. You know, you know, why have you forsaken me? He sa- He says to God, he is experiencing the full terror of what it is to suffer and 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 to die. And it's a profound thought. And for Dostoevsky, and and perhaps for anyone looking at the painting, you, you are confronted by his being dead, God being dead. It's a powerful moment. And at the same time, in the same period of, of history uh, that, that Fyodor Dostoevsky was thinking and, and writing, Friedrich Nietzsche was there too, was, was alive in the same world at the same time. And he published in 1882, a bit later, he published The Gay Science. And it's in The Gay Science that, that he makes this pronouncement or, or the character, The Madman, in the work, makes this pronouncement that God is dead. And Nietzsche said of Dostoevsky, whose work he was aware of, he said, Nietzsche said that Dostoevsky was the only psychologist who had anything to teach him. He was the only one that he learned anything from. And the fact is that by some means that we'll never understand... Both Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, each in their own way, saw the same fate for humankind in a world without God. You know, I mean, Dostoevsky sees in that painting, "God is dead." That's the death of God, and and that changed everything for Dostoevsky. Changed his perception, and and Nietzsche foresaw the same thing. they, they both somehow or other independently of one another, they thought themselves into the 20th century that lay ahead. They kind of projected themselves into the future and they they saw the horrors, the attendant horrors of the 20th century in a world because, you know, Nietzsche articulated it more completely that humankind would move away from, would get beyond God, would kill God and be godless, And that in that godless state, all the trouble in the world would come. There's a long quote. This is the madman. Where has God gone? I shall tell you. We have killed him. You and I. We are his murderers. What did we do when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving now? Away from all suns? Are we not perpetually falling, backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is it not more and more night coming on all the time? Must not lanterns be lit in the mornings? Do we not Hear anything yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we not smell anything yet of God's decomposition? God's too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. How shall we, murderers of all murderers, console ourselves? That which was the holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet possessed has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? With what water could we purify ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we need to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we not ourselves become gods simply to be worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whosoever shall be born after us, for the sake of this deed, he shall be part of a higher history than all history hitherto. It's powerful stuff. (laughs) It's powerful stuff. But perhaps, I mean, that's, that was 1882, but perhaps it was Dostoyevsky who saw, who saw it all first, who had the vision first, inspired in part by Holbein's painting or inspired by those experiences that he had while undergoing the epileptic seizures that were his dark travelling companion. And it haunts me because... That's Dostoevsky's experience. That's Nietzsche's experience and comprehension of what was going on. But it, 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 it ghosts in the peripheral vision of others. Other, other people sense something of the same significance. Now, the last love letter, as it happens, the last moment in the world was uh, James Clerk Maxwell and his inestimable contribution to, to science, to physics, to maths. And after he died, people contemplated what his contribution had meant, would mean. And the English physicist Oliver Heaviside was was amongst those who who wrote about James Clerk Maxwell in the aftermath of his death. And he said that some people live the best part of their lives after they're dead. He said that James Clerk Maxwell's soul will live and grow for years to come and hundreds of years hence will shine as one of the bright stars of the past whose light takes years to reach us. That's brilliant. That that idea that, that a life lived like the light from a distant star, the the significance, the brightness, comes from a far-off place. And, and he meant, I suppose, in part, the contemporaries... Those who lived alongside James Clark Maxwell and had known him, and then uh, in the aftermath of his death, still yet could not comprehend fully or properly what he had meant, and what his understanding of of the universe was going to mean. And I think the same idea is there in Dostoevsky, and the same I- idea, and the, and the same idea is there in Nietzsche's Madman. And Nietzsche put it this way. Deeds require time, even after they are done, before they can be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than the distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. So there, in you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe Heaviside had read <laughs> and was and was aware. More and more now, I think about the painting, and I think about the idea of God is dead. And that we have killed them. Because in the secular West, you know, we do live in a in a world without God. That's what we've been given by the scientists, by those who went before us, and by their science, it cut us adrift from God and said, you know, no, we can explain everything in other ways. There's no need for God. And it was there with Darwin. You know, Darwin on The Origin of Species ended the, the, that long. Sense that the Earth was unique, and that man was a unique creation of God, a unique, perfect creation of God, you know Darwin confronted everyone with with the idea that no we were just just a product of a of a mindless process and ever after Darwin that opened the door to eugenics, that idea that well, if human beings aren't actually the creation of God, if we're just animals then It's okay to do things to animals. We can experiment on animals. Darwin's work opened the door to the 20th century as well. And I think about all of that. And that's why, for me, that moment of Fyodor Dostoevsky standing in front of Holbein's The Body of the Dead Christ in the tomb is a very significant moment. His understanding changed the world of literature. And Nietzsche put into words a dark thought that must be confronted and must be contemplated. You know, we are living in a world after God. Or so many of the secular people of the secular West are living in a world without God. And look where we are. Father, a newspaper editor and clergyman repeatedly told them it's given only to God and angels to fly. But with a stiff 27mph cold wind blowing and an audience of five, a dairy farmer, three lifesavers and a curious 18-year-old boy, the Wright Flyer, a biplane with a 40 foot wingspan and a 12 horsepower petrol engine fires up and sets off down a runway on the side of a sand dune called Kill Devil Hill. Lift off. Airborne for 120 feet, the first powered flight. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get exclusive content every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver site on patreon.com. It'd be great to see you there. I have a new website address, an easy one for this complicated time. It's neiloliver.com. Check out my shop for merchandise. T-shirts, mugs, hoodies, the works. My Instagram account will, with interesting daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called the Neil Oliver Channel and features new films every week. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it, get them listening and maybe write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production by Squared Studios and the graphics by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production.